is the word of the Lord. Indeed, thanks be to God, even for that, right? I mean, if, if Revelation is the strangest book in the Bible, that chapter, I think, may be the strangest one in the book. It, one of the themes that we've been saying week by week is things are not what they seem. That's a great teaching of this book. Things are not what they seem. There's more behind reality than you can experience with your senses. This book is apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature seeks to reveal. It seeks to pull back the curtain so that you suddenly are seeing your everyday life from a different perspective. There is more to going on than what seems to be true. Now, our theme today is this, that behind the realities of your everyday existence, behind the ups and downs of your everyday life, behind the ups and downs of human civilization and all of human history, there is a war, an unseen war. And this is not, it is not talking about uh, the, the so-called culture war or the, the political war, war between political parties or war between kingdoms. This is talking about a spiritual war, the great cosmic war that has been going on since the beginning of the world. This chapter is claiming that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you dare to follow the slain lamb, then you too will be immersed in this war every single day of your life, that this will be a reality of your life from the day that you were born until the last breath that you breathe, and you will bear the cost, the suffering, the pain, and the sorrow of that war every single day until you die. Sounds fun. <laughs> this, does not, um, this does not jive well with the American way and with American Christianity. We tend, as Americans, um, we tend to view suffering as a problem to overcome, not as an expected reality of everyday life. And therefore, American Christians tend to see their faith as a tool to use to overcome suffering so that we can experience the so-called good life, right? We all know that you know, everybody suffers every now and then, everybody has trouble every now and then, but I think deep down we all kind of wanna believe life is not supposed to be one big struggle. Life is not supposed to be one long fight, especially for Christians, right? I mean, Jesus promised us peace and joy and fullness of life, so we assume that the stronger your faith is, the easier your life should be. The stronger your faith is, the, the smoother the sailing. But Revelation is pulling back the curtain and saying, wake up, wake up. There is a war going on and you are caught up in that war and you have an enemy who is trying to destroy you. And the very worst thing that you could do is to pretend or deny that that war exists. Let me just use a kind of a silly illustration here. Imagine that all of us are on a cruise ship, okay? A terrible place to be during COVID, but <laughs> let's, let's, just, and, and, uh, let's just imagine it's a COVID-free world and we're all on a cruise ship together, okay? And it's great, you know, there's buffets of food and there's exotic places and entertainment and smooth jazz, you know, playing everywhere on the cruise ship. It's, it's just awesome. It's like the good life, right? And so you're enjoying it, you're enjoying this cruise, and then all of a sudden, oh my gosh, you look over here and look, part of the deck is on fire. And suddenly you start seeing all the shelling and you see these explosions and you see, 
everyone's in chaos and the people that were just dancing and having fun are just running around screaming and pandemonium is breaking out and you just cry out, what is happening? What is happening on this cruise ship? And then someone leans over to you and says, uh, excuse me, sir, we are not on a cruise ship. We are on a battleship in enemy territory in the middle of a war. And then suddenly everything makes a whole lot more sense, right? I mean, imagine trying to live in a battleship as if it's a cruise ship. That's going to be incredibly discouraging and really frustrating all the time. You're going to be like, where's the fun? Where's the dancing? Where's the shrimp? Where's the smooth jazz, right? You know, I'm supposed to be having a great time. I'm not supposed to be suffering. I'm not supposed to be in pain. I'm supposed to be relaxing on the deck under my umbrella with a pina colada, right? No, no, not if you're on a battleship, right? Not if you're in a war. And that's what Revelation 12 is showing to us. You are not on a cruise ship. There's a war going on and not just any war, the war, the great war of the universe that you are now a part of. And it is so vital that we see this. Do you know the only thing more dangerous than being in the middle of a battlefield? Being in the middle of a battlefield without knowing you're in the battle. Right? Thinking that you are on a cruise ship when you're really on a battleship. Thinking you're on vacation on the beach when you're really uh, in Normandy in 1944. Too many Christians are living like life is supposed to be a cruise ship. When what is promised to us by Jesus, by this book, again and again, is that we are in a war. And it is no wonder that people do everything they can to avoid suffering. And why, why people are not able to handle or experience pain or hardship because we've not reckoned with the truth that we are in a war. Things are not what they seem. So wake up, wake up. Okay, so let's, let's take a look at this war. Um, you know, the fourth, the, the fifth century book, Art of War, uh, by, the, by the Chinese um, strategist uh, Sun Tzu, I've not read the book, I've just read the Wikipedia summary. Um, says, you know, he says, in the, it's the first law of war to know your enemy and his strategies. And so let's just look at what this chapter says about our enemy, the enemy, and then the weapons of the enemy, uh, and then our defense against the enemy. Okay? So first, let's look at uh, the enemy. Who is the enemy? Well, look at who, who, who do you fight with? Well, you fight with your spouse, you know, you fight with your kids. Uh, you fight with your, your colleagues at work. Uh, sometimes you fight with your church. Sometimes we think, a lot of us these days think that our enemy is the, the person in the other political party who believes in different policies that we disagree with. Whenever we make any of these fights the real fight of our lives, then we are losing. We are losing the war. Ephesians 6, Paul reminds us that our true enemies are not fellow human beings but spiritual powers. He says this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's what this chapter is teaching us. Paul's teaching it through doctrinal truth. Revelation is teaching it through poetry. And so look at this image, right? He says in verse three, then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his head. This is your real enemy, a giant red seven-headed dragon. <laughs> and of course, this is a symbol, like all things that John, and this is actually one of the few times uh, that John actually shows his cards and reveals 
the meaning of the symbol that he writes about. So in verse 9, he says, This dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, there's a hyperlink here to Genesis 3. Remember that, kids? Remember Genesis 3? And Adam and Eve were in the garden. Who showed up in the garden to turn them away from God? The serpent. And so he's drawing this story to the great story of the Bible that goes way back to Genesis 3, making clear here the very seriousness of our foe. It says that he has seven heads. And remember, seven is his choice number of perfection, which means this dragon is perfectly horrible. And he has 10 horns on each head, and a horn for John is a sign of power, and 10 is a number of completion. So he is completely powerful. He's red. Red is a, remember the the four horsemen? Red is the color of blood and warfare. Verse four says he sweeps down a third of the stars. The damage he exerts is just like uh, incomprehensible. And this is, his point is that this is not a wimpy foe. He is extremely powerful. This is not like the dragon in the Hobbit where, you know, if you just like Legolas, like aim an arrow, just at the right soft spot on his chest, he'll take him down. Like if that's what you think this is, then you have vastly overestimated yourself and vastly underestimated your enemy. Because as, 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 as Luther said in that great hymn, his craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. This enemy is real. If you have, well, let me put it this way. If you're one of those people who have maybe thought at certain points in your life that someone is out to get you, you're right. Someone is out to get you. And it is far worse than anything you've ever imagined. He is the most terrible, horrific, merciless foe. First Peter 5.8 says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He is out to kill and steal and destroy. You may not think about the devil very much, but I promise you, he thinks a lot about you. He knows you by name. And he is out to destroy you, destroy God's good world destroy God's people. The enemy is real. Now, now let me just say this. Um, It's 2020. And so for me to stand up publicly and talk about the devil in 2020 is a little risky (laughs) because I know, I mean, it just sounds weird. It sounds funny. Like seriously, modern people believe in the devil. Um, you know, ancient people, maybe they needed the idea of the devil to kind of explain a world without science, a world that didn't make sense to them. You know, religious people maybe often use the devil to sort of make excuses for themselves. The devil made me do it. But we're modern people. We really, do we really believe in the devil today? Friends, I think it would be naive to not believe in the devil. Frankly, I think it is intellectually indefensible Uh, to stand in the middle of a children's cancer ward and to say there is not a thing as personal evil in the world. I don't think there is a credible way to explain the horrific nature of our reality without talking about personal evil. Or if you want to quote Roger Kent in that amazing film, Usual Suspects, uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Right? If evil were re- just think about it. If evil were real and the, and, the, and the devil is legitimate, then isn't, wouldn't he most want to do is to, make, to, to convince the world that he's just a fairy tale or just like this little red guy with a little you know, funny red tail or just the stuff of horror movies? That's exactly what he wants. All the wisest people in history 
have known that evil is not, an, is not a fairy tale, uh, is not a fable or a caricature, but a real and formidable personal presence in the world. In fact, this is very interesting, especially given all of the racial conflict over the last few months. But Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King, during the civil rights movement in the 60s, um, in contrary to many of the civil rights leaders around him who insisted that this problem with racism and segregation could be removed through um, education and human effort and um, just legislation and the power of the will, King was insistent that this could never just be a social movement. It had to be a spiritual movement because of the real powers of evil at play in societies in the human heart. This is, this is a really interesting quote. Look, he said, man cannot remove evil through his own power and ingenuity and the strange conviction that by thinking, inventing, and governing, he will at last conquer the nagging forces of evil. We need God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And the liberal elites hated it when he said stuff like this because he insisted, while they were insisting this is a social movement, he said, no, this is a spiritual war. And this is what John is saying. Wake up, the devil is real. The enemy is real. He plays for keeps. He's out to steal and kill and destroy. So wake up. Wake up to the war. Okay, so that's our enemy. But what about the weapons of the enemy? What is the enemy's strategy? How does he come at us? Well, you know, in popular culture, um, and even in some Christian circles, there's this idea that the main way the, uh, the, the devil tries to get us is by like, you know, like demon possession and, and um, you know, poltergeist shaking the wind chimes in your house and making you kill cats and play with the Ouija boards and, you know, things like that. And I'm not, I'm not denying that any of that stuff isn't true. I'm just saying that's a distraction to the real battle. Because this chapter in much of scripture highlights two specific ways that the devil seeks to attack. And one is deception and the other is accusation. Okay, so look at verse nine, deception. Verse nine says he is the deceiver of the whole world. The chief strategy of the devil is deception. Jesus in John nine calls him, the devil is a liar and the father of lies. He is a deceiver. And the thing about deception is deception relies on you not realizing it is happening to you. If you realize that you were being deceived, you would not be deceived, right? Um, and so that's what's so crazy about being deceived is that you actually feel like you're in control. You feel like you're being rational. You feel entitled to your anger. You feel entitled to your lust. You feel entitled to your greed. Um, you feel like the thoughts in your head are your own thoughts. You think it's you talking to you. And all the while you're being deceived. This, the primary way the devil deceives is by calling God's goodness and love into question. This is his oldest lie. Genesis chapter three. What does he say to Adam and Eve? He convinces them that God is not trustworthy, that he's not giving them the whole truth. That he's holding back his love. He's holding back his goodness. And this is what the devil loves to do, to use the circumstances of your life to question God's love for you. Just recently, I talked with someone who has gone through some serious and very unusual specialized cancer and he is just questioning God's goodness and love for him. Look what's happening to me. Obviously, God is not good. You know, obviously, God doesn't care about me. Obviously, God is out to lunch. Or obviously, he's turned against me. Or he's not there at all. It's a lie. But Satan deceives. And his deception may be drawing you into believing that you need something other than God to be truly happy. Whether money or power or sex or approval or control. Or, and this is a big one that he does these days, his deception may be telling you that your true enemy is the person you are in conflict with. 
And I want you to remember this, especially as you're going into the holiday season, right? Conflict is, is actually good and healthy. Christians should be the very best at conflict. And yet your enemy is out to persuade you that your true enemy is the, actually the one that you're in conflict with. Friend, your enemy is not your brother or your sister or your mom or your dad or the person at the Thanksgiving table or the person who has different political views than you or even the person who is spreading nasty rumors about you. That person is not your true enemy. Your enemy is the devil, and yet he is doing everything he can to work in and through the circumstances of your life, filling your head and heart with lies, and you don't even see it because he deceives. He's the deceiver. So he deceives, and then he also accuses. Chapter 12, verse 10 calls the devil the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan, the word Satan literally means adversary. It's taken from the language of the court of law. And so the, the, the images of you standing in, in, in the box with the, the devil just pounding you with evidence of your condemnation. He delights in stealing your confidence and your peace and your joy by accusing you, pointing out your failures, pointing out the ways that you have failed to follow up, uh, pointing out the ways that you have failed to live up to your own standards, let alone God's standards and leading you into shame. And of course, this is a contradiction of the gospel because you're standing before God. It's not based on your performance or your record, but only on the performance and record of Jesus Christ. And yet Satan will accuse you and accuse you until you believe his lies that you're worthless and you are not precious to God and you are not held in his grace and he does not look on you with love and you're a worthless person and you are beyond saving. This is one I'm very familiar with. I'm someone who many, many years has struggled with shame. And he deceives and he accuses. These are the two main weapons of our enemy and he will relentlessly pursue you with these lies and accusations until you turn away from the God who loves you. So what do we do? What's our defense? Well, you know, there's two other characters in this story. First, we see verse one, there's a woman she is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars. John says she's a sign, which means that she's a symbol. This is not likely Mary, but is a symbol representing something larger. And what is it? Well, all clues point to her being a symbol of the whole people of God. And so clues point to her being a sign of Eve, the mother of all humanity. Uh, point to the 12 tribes, the 12 stars on her head. Clues point to her being Old Testament Israel. You know, Isaiah portrays Israel as a woman in labor waiting to give birth to the Messiah. So this woman represents the whole people of God who's out of whom the seed of the Messiah comes as God promised in Genesis 3 when he says to the evil serpent, she will crush your head even as you seek to bruise his heel. And so she gives birth to this male child, chapter 12, verse 5. And it says, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is a reference. A hyperlink here is to Psalm 2, the most referenced psalm in the whole New Testament every time a reference to Jesus Christ. This child is the Savior, Jesus. And this is the one that the dragon wants to devour from his very birth. Think of King Herod, who sought to destroy Jesus even as a baby. And then as Jesus grew up, even his entire life was just surrounded with enemies who sought to destroy him and who ultimately crucified him. Behind all those enemies was this great enemy, the dragon. But we see in verse five, the dragon's plans are thwarted. The child is snatched up to God into his throne. You see that? Now this is what's called, this is a literary device called, uh, I'm gonna use a big word here, 
temporal telescoping. So what this is, is John is using a poetic literary device in which he takes a big story, Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and he telescopes it into a single symbolic movement. He's birthed and then he's caught up to God, ascended, placed on the throne with God on high. And we can see that, that because Jesus has ascended and now reigns as Lord, as you can see in verse seven through 12, the major and conclusive battle of this heavenly war has been won. Jesus has triumphed. And it says in verse 10, now have come the salvation and power and kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night. What has been hurled down. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus has conclusively triumphed over Satan. Satan and all of his angelic forces of evil took all of their power and hurled them at Jesus on the cross. Jesus on the cross bore the conclusive and comprehensive powers of evil in his own body on the cross. And then he died and triumphed over them in his resurrection and was ascended as a sign of his victory over the devil. Through his unjust pain and death, Jesus has conquered Satan and he has been thrown down, right? And yet, and yet he is not fully vanquished, right? In fact, as you can see, he's filled with fury. Verse 12, he is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. He is mad and I think we could say this in church in this instance, he's mad as hell. You know, he is. Because he is filled with fury and rage because he knows D-Day has happened. The, the, the conclusive battle has happened, but V-Day has not yet occurred yet. And so he is doing everything he can to attack the woman and her offspring, verse 17, to take out as many people as he possibly can before Jesus returns and vanquishes evil conclusively. But now, now in this in-between time as we wait, and as he continues to attack, we have the most powerful defense in the universe. We have the reigning Jesus. We have the one who has already conquered evil. The devil has been beaten. He can't do anything anymore. He cannot change the Father's love for you. It is a fixed reality. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You cannot undo the accomplishments of Jesus Christ and the devil can do nothing about it. You are held in his grace forever. Satan will do everything he can to mess with your knowing this truth, believing this truth, trusting this truth, and living in this truth, but now we have the most powerful weapon, the reigning lamb. I watched, uh, rewatched the first Avengers movie last night with my family, and it's the best Avengers movie, uh, in my opinion. Um, and there's this, there's this scene where Loki, you know, the great nemesis, is taunting the Avengers. And he says, ha, I have an army. And uh, Tony Stark, just sort of Iron Man, just shrugged his shoulder and says, we have a Hulk. <laughs> and, and this is our situation. You know, Satan says, I have an army. I have an army of evidence. I have an army of accusations. I have an army of destruction to throw at you. And we just shrug our shoulders and say, we have the Christ. We have the exalted one. We have the one who reigns over heaven and earth, who has conclusively defeated evil. As the hymn says, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage, we can't endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. What is the little word? Jesus. 
one little word. So what does this mean for your daily life? Well, um, it, verse 11 says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So what that means is we take a concerted and intentional effort every day to stand under and in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. We stand in his righteousness. We stand in his love. We stand in his completed work for us. You cannot beat evil. You can in Christ. You cannot wage war against the devil. You can in Christ. You cannot stand up against his accusations and deceit. You can in Christ because you have this great advocate now. You know, I love Martin Luther on this. Martin Luther is very colorful when it comes to his fights with the devil. And he was often visited by the devil who would lie to him and accuse him and say things like, Martin, you are a liar, greedy, lecherous, a blasphemer, and a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God. And maybe that happens to you sometimes. Maybe the devil comes to you and just points out all of your failures, all of your mistakes, all the things dark, hidden away in your closet that you don't want anyone to see and just exposes them and, and, makes, and, and puts your sin right in front of your face. Now, what does Martin do? Martin Luther said like this. He said, well, devil, yes, I am. I am all those things. And indeed, Satan, you do not know the half of it. I have done much worse than that. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no doubt add to it and help make, you make it more complete. But you know what? Luther says, my savior has died for all of my sins. Those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed, but I am so wicked that I am unaware of even having done them. It does not change the fact that Christ has died for all of them. His blood is sufficient. So get out. <laughs> His blood is sufficient. See, Luther knew temptation. He knew the deceit. He knew the shame. He knew the evil. He, he was often accused, but he knew more the sufficiency and all-surpassing all perfection of Jesus Christ, his completed work and his righteousness. He knew for, I like the Puritans, they would say, for every one look at your sin, take 10,000 looks at Christ, right? He knew the triumph of Jesus over evil forever. The devil has his armies. We have the Christ. So this week, the devil's gonna come to you. He's gonna come to you with lies. He's gonna come to you with accusations. He's going to try to persuade you that God doesn't love you, that God isn't real, the Father doesn't care for you, he's not out for your good, your circumstances are too heavy, you're not going to be able to make it on your own, you're alone, you're too far off, you're broken, you're a failure, you're a wreck, you can't do it. I just heard that stuff this morning. And when you hear that, remember Christ. Look to Christ. The suffering, listen, this is very important, the suffering and trials and problems of your lives are not a sign of God's absence, nor are they a sign of Satan's victory. They are a sign of his recognition of defeat and doing everything he can to take you out. But God has proven his love for you. He has already won the battle against evil. He has lived and died, and Jesus is now reigning far above all rule and authority. He is with you. He is for you. He is above you. He is beneath you. He is behind you. He is within you, and one day soon, Satan will be destroyed forever with one little word. So, so things are not what they seem. Wake up, Christian friend. You are not on a cruise ship, okay? Please don't buy into that lie. Uh, life is not supposed to be, nor ever will be, a cruise ship. And if you expect that or demand that or try to make your life like that, then you, I promise you, will be in for serious disillusionment and despair. 
We are in a war. You will be until the day that you die. We have a terrible enemy. The good news is we have this triumphant Savior who has won, who is winning, who will win forever. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he. Lord Sabbath is his name from age to age the same, and he will win the battle. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for your triumph over evil. And gosh, our lives feel like it's full of so much evil right now. The four horsemen are just galloping like crazy right now, (laughs) just taking out so much. And sometimes it just feels like that, um, I don't know, evil's going to win. And yet it is already lost. Jesus has already triumphed over the powers of evil. And he is just, the devil is just making one last final fruitless attempt to take out as many as he can. And yet we stand in Christ. We stand with Christ. We stand in Christ. Help us this week um, to look to him in, our, in this war that we're in. In Jesus' name, amen.